Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 658 of the podcast and it is Friday the 25th of November 2022 as I record this. So in today's show, I'm talking to John Truby about his new book, The Anatomy of Genre, which is seriously excellent and I really enjoyed our conversation. John defines genre, then gives some examples around writing science fiction, although the tips are still relevant regardless of what genre you write. Plus, how to transcend genre, how to write successfully cross-genre, which I'm definitely interested in, and basically how to be more successful with your stories. It is absolutely aimed at writing commercially, by which John means best-selling, and applicable to movies and TV. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing and book marketing news, well, the Penguin Random House acquisition of Simon & Schuster has fallen apart, as reported by The Guardian. The acquisition was blocked on the 1st of November, which I mentioned, but there were rumours of an appeal, which is now not happening. But of course, Paramount, the who owns Simon & Schuster, will still sell it. They are quoted as saying it is a non-core asset, it is not video-based and therefore does not fit strategically within Paramount's broader portfolio. So it, it's, I, find this, I find it so weird that everyone's saying, oh, amazing, it's been blocked. But two other big publishers are probably next in line. HarperCollins and the owner of Hachette are interested. So either it will be another publishing company or it will be an investment firm. And I mean, an investment firm's whole point is to divest at some point and make a profit. So I don't know. I I don't think it's over. I mean, maybe it's just beginning. But uh, I discussed this further with Jane Friedman uh, in an interview coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Someone's going to buy it, and wouldn't it be better if it were a publisher? But uh, pros and cons of everything. Talking of Jane Friedman, her fantastic hot sheet newsletter, which I highly recommend, linked to a Vox article about Amazon advertising this week, which was really fascinating. Again, links in the show notes as ever. It says, in the first nine months of 2020, 22, Amazon's ad revenue surpassed the money it makes from Prime, Prime Video, and its other audio and ebook subscriptions combined. Along with Amazon Web Services, advertising has emerged as one of the company's top two profit engines. Now, we all know this. <laughs> because we basically do buy ads now. Um, you know, the days of organic discovery are well gone. But they also talk about the future of advertising. Amazon has designs to boost its ad business to new heights by selling more video commercials on Amazon properties like video game uh, live streaming service Twitch and during live sporting events on Prime Video and by offering audio ads on Amazon Music, which I'm definitely interested in. You might even be listening to this podcast on Amazon Music. The company has also invested heavily in in-house software tools that allow brands to purchase highly targeted ads around the web. 
Uh, so basically, the article goes on to say, um, whereas five or six years ago, many sellers could build a business on Amazon with a quality differentiated product and not much more without spending any money on ads, sellers say that is not true today. A quoted um, seller says, successful sellers have to spend anywhere between 10% and 20% of their sales on Amazon ads. So we know this is a truth um, of the platform these days, but to have it in sort of black and white there is uh, good. I mean, basically saying even if you have a quality differentiated product, and yes, that means your book, (laughs) you can't get away without advertising. Um, But it also says Amazon's own shopping site is already saturated with ads. So they're looking for expanding the platform, the ad platform into other places. Uh, Amazon is positioning itself to become an even bigger player in the overall ad industry in the years to come. So what does this mean? Well, I mean, as ever, (laughs) it means you need to do some ads. (laughs) But So learn Amazon ads. There are free courses available on Readsy, Kindlepreneur and challenges like Brian Cohen's ads course and of course, Mark Dawson's ads for authors, which I'm a, a happy affiliate of. And Mark will be coming on the show in January to talk about it. I use Amazon ads for fiction and nonfiction and I outsource them both. So I realize that you have to be selling a certain amount to be able to outsource. But um, to me, it's like a necessary thing that has to be done. Uh, It is a cost of doing business. However, it's going to be interesting with this pilgrimage book because I am intending to set up and run some ads myself again, uh, because it's just not going to earn enough money to outsource that. (laughs) But while I do absolutely advocate paid ads as part of your author business, I also think you should build your own direct sales site because let's face it, every time you pay money to Amazon or Facebook or any of these other platforms, that money goes into building their ecosystem. But while you do that, you should also build your own ecosystem where you own the data and the relationship with your customer and you take more of a chunk of income up front. So this is the creator economy model, which I've talked about. Obviously, I have a book. I don't have a book on it yet. I am thinking of doing one next year, but I do have a course, thecreativepen.com forward slash learn on the creator economy. But essentially, it flips it on its head. Um, So what my plan is now is, um, and I've mentioned I'm going to do a Kickstarter first, so a Kickstarter for Pilgrimage, followed by my direct store, creativepenbooks.com, then followed by all the other sites. And so this is the sort of take one bite of the direct sales um, with a Kickstarter or selling direct, and then leave the rest of the pie for um, the other stores and the idea over time is that you take bigger chunks of that pie for your direct sales. And this is why I also think we'll see more book NFTs as the penny drops around direct sales and another revenue stream. So I will always have the majority of my books available wide, but uh, that will be after I do these other things. So increasingly focusing on direct first and direct only editions. And then the stores are for those people who prefer to purchase there or those who don't know me yet. And that's, I guess, what I think about with ads is it's more about engaging people who don't know me, who don't know my books, that kind of thing. So I don't want you to feel negatively about these ad ecosystems. They are, you know, it's actually great. I mean, we didn't have any of this in the early days, but equally, (laughs) I am absolutely an advocate for building your own ecosystem. So over time, you are not 
dependent on these uh, platforms, paying them more and more money to be visible as more and more books are published, which is, yeah, inevitable. <laughs> and in terms of audiobooks, Spotify has launched audiobooks now in the UK, Ireland, Australia and New Zealand. It is an a la carte model at the moment, so you have to buy them. And it's, it's a bit of a clunky process because they're having a, a bit of a a beef with Apple and some of the other platforms about taking revenue from that. My audiobooks are available on Spotify through Findaway Voices. If you publish that way, you your book should be there. Um, but I fully expect them to start making custom audiobooks, licensing custom content, uh, so it can be included in the catalogue as part of subscription. That might even be uh, something one could negotiate in a contract at some point. So again, I've seen authors uh, freaking out about this and saying, oh, well, that's the end of it. We're going to make less money. But the subscription model, again, in the same way, the creator economy turns things on its head. I am more than enthusiastic about having my books on Spotify. I've been talking about it for several years now and bugging find a way to get on there. Um, it's about treating these platforms as places to pull our thousand true fans back to our site. So in a huge number of listeners, and uh, you might be listening on Spotify, so uh, a huge number of listeners on these platforms, we want to bring some of them back to our own stores. And uh, so treat these sites as outposts, more almost more like marketing, marketing that uh, then hopefully pays us some money, but they are not primary revenue streams. And the mistake is when people make these platforms primary revenue streams and then the the rules change. So yeah, that uh, Spotify uh, article is on TechCrunch, but also if you're on Spotify, you would have seen pop-ups and things in these countries. So it's very interesting to see what will happen in 2023 around audio. As ever, audio just changes every year. It's very exciting. Talking of exciting, <laughs> there are so many things going on as ever. Uh, everything seems to be speeding up. And many of you ask how I get my information on futurist things. So I read a lot. Um, I listen a lot uh, this week. So I thought I'd give you a few in case you're interested in learning more. Because obviously I cherry pick the things I share on this podcast and in my separate episodes. Uh, I read a great book this week, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI by Toby Walsh, which has got me thinking a lot. I mean, essentially, <laughs> we humans struggle with what we really want and what we really think and what is ethical. So yeah, it's a really interesting book. I've underlined almost half of it. <laughs> I'm also doing a course on ethics in AI at the moment, so I will hopefully compile some kind of article or solo episode on that at some point. I also listen to a lot of podcasts. I would recommend the A16Z podcast. I say A16Z, but it's their company. So um, Neil Stevenson was on there this week talking about the future of the metaverse. Now, he coined the term metaverse in his book Snow Crash uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s. And his more recent book is Termination Shock. And he's written a lot of science fiction. He's also advised Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's space company and augmented reality company Magic Leap. And I was very excited with this episode because he's now co-founded a new company, Lamina One, which is a blockchain company for creators. If you have any doubts about how blockchain is going to 
be useful for creators, then have a listen to this episode. He talks about how the value chain could work for creators, especially when our work trains these large language AI models, which I talked about this, this kind of data licensing model in my 2020 book on AI and blockchain, um, which I'm kind of really happy to see starting to come true. And I've got another episode on this with a company that's also looking to do this kind of data licensing model. So I, I, I mean, fingers crossed, this actually might happen. Um, you know, I think Neil Neil Stevenson has a lot invested in this. He's an author, so he understands this. Uh, so yeah, a blockchain that could tra- track provenance of original ideas and provide a revenue stream for creators would be uh, a boon for us all, hopefully. Also, if you're heading over to the A16Z podcast, have a listen to the episode on why technology still matters with Mark Andreessen, which has a good look at how fear always goes hand in hand with the emergence of new technology and how long it can take for things to change. Also, a couple of episodes recently on moonshots and mindsets with Peter Diamandis. The episode with Jane McGonigal on Gaming Will Save the World is excellent. She has this brilliant exercise she does where she says, OK, think about what is true. So let's say AI cannot write a novel is true. Then she says, flip it on its head. So let's flip that. AI can write a novel. And then you look for evidence that that might be true. And you see, you look for signals. This is a kind of future ep- exercise to figure out what might happen. So, uh, you know, you can do this over and over again in terms of, you know, publishing will never use NFTs. Well, flip that. <laughs> publishing will use NFTs. And then you start to say, OK, if you look for evidence of that, there's a lot of evidence for that now. So this is this is a really good exercise. Whatever domain you're in, in your normal life, in your work life, is to flip this uh, on its head and think, OK, what is true? And then flip it to the opposite and then look for evidence that what you flipped is actually true. Uh, and also on that on that podcast, the future of Twitter, American democracy and AI with Salim Ismail. Really interesting. So, yeah, that those two podcasts, A16Z and Moonshots and Mindsets. So in useful stuff, the sessions from 20 Books Vegas are being uploaded to YouTube so you can watch them for free. So that's the on YouTube 20 Books to 50K live events and I'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks as ever to Craig Martell, Michael Anderley and all the volunteers for continuing to lift all author boats. Uh, It also sounds like there might be some 20 books conferences in Europe next year, Seville or Sevilla and Amsterdam around the time of London Book Fair. So I might be at one of those uh, as well as London Book Fair itself, which in 2023 has the theme of defining the future of creative content. I'm kind of stunned. Could they possibly Possibly be open to sessions on AI. Well, I'm going to be pitching some, that's for sure. <laughs> also, last call for my free webinar with Alex Newton this week um, on from Klytics on trends for 2023. We haven't done a live webinar for for a few years now, and Alex's research into categories, keywords, and genres is super useful in terms of researching the intersection between what sells and what you love. So you can join us for that webinar. 
uh, on Thursday, 1st of December, 8pm UK, 3pm US Eastern. Alex will go through genre trends and how to spot them, the impact of Amazon's recent category display changes, fundamentals and pitfalls of sales rank, categories and writing to market, and how the right data can help you save time, money and creative energy and sell more books in 2023. You can register for your free place at thecreativepen.com forward slash trends 23. Link in the show notes. So in my personal update, I'm on my second hand edit for my pilgrimage book. I printed it out, edited it, and it's completely covered in scribbles. And now I've printed it out again. I made the changes in Scrivener and then printed it out again. And it needs some rejigging and even some further consolidation. I've cut the word count even more because I repeated myself still and I'm happy with it. Uh, I'm just going to do a final read through before sending it to my editor. I mean, I could spend months more researching little things to add in, but I feel like that project is pretty complete. And when you feel like that, I mean, things are never finished, right? You just have to decide that they are finished. (laughs) So I'll send it off to Kristen, my editor, and then I'll do any rewrites, deepening, as we call it, and extra stuff over the holiday period. And uh, yeah, I've started um, after this discussion with John Truby. Uh, I think my, well, this always happens as well. After I write nonfiction, I'm like, oh, I need to write a story. So I'm, I've, I might write this, um, I'm working title Edinburgh Catacombs story, which I've had on the back burner for ages. Um, I know what it is. I would just need to write it. It would be a standalone, I think. Uh, but also this week I generated some portraits on Mid Journey for a talk I'm doing. And I put them up on Instagram and Facebook at JF Penn author of mermaids of different races and ages. So like a, a child, a mixed race child mermaid, a Chinese mermaid, um, a, uh, you know, black mermaid an old mermaid then um, alien and uh, you know all kinds of different mermaids and the characters are so evocative and I asked the question which one would you like to hear their story and people have really engaged with it and particularly interested in the old mermaid who you just never see them this is what's so magical about this generative AI it's like if you go looking for stock photos of mermaids they're they're all young people (laughs) But now you can generate these uh, these pictures of whatever you want. And this old mermaid just, yeah, I looked at her too and went, I, I wonder what she thinks or what she's seen as an old mermaid. So I might just write that as a surprise short story. It would be a short story. But yeah, thinking about that. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Jenny Lisk says, what a thrill to get the Creative Pens email today and see the discussion with Dory Clark, two of my favourite thinkers. Uh, lovely. Thank you, Jenny. Thanks to William on the Isle of Wight for pictures of his dog, Clement, and his utility kilt, which he wears out walking while listening to the podcast. Thank you, William. Sylvia Ziuba. Uh, says, listening to the podcast while driving through the countryside in South Australia, a picture of lovely green fields. And Nala says, listening by a rainy lake while the kitchen renovation goes on without me. A wonderful picture of a dashboard in the car with a coffee cup and what looks like a cinnamon bun with pistachio on, which looks delicious. (laughs) 
<laughs> so remember, you can tweet me at the Creative Pen. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Email me, Joanna at thecreativepen.com. Leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Drafter Digital, and I'll play a word from Kevin Tumlinson in a minute. I use Drafter Digital for publishing to Nook, library services, and other smaller ebook platforms, and I also use their payment splitting service to all the all the platforms for ebooks um, for the relaxed author with Mark Leslie Lefave, and you can also do it for print. If you co-write, it is a major hassle to pay other writers, but Drafter Digital can do it for you. And I wish they had been doing that years ago. It would save me time with my co-writers now. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. A thanks to new patrons this week, Dabila Graham and Jennifer Anderson. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for years and months. You're all fantastic. And uh, you get the extra Q&A audio, which I do every month. It's about 45 minutes of, of me answering questions and talking about various things, which uh, you can, uh, you also get a um, percentage off my eBooks, my courses and lots of different things there. So you can support the show for just a couple of dollars or euros or pounds or whatever your currency is usually and you'll get that you can support the show at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen right here's a word from drafter digital and then we'll get on with the interview hi this is kevin tomlinson with drafter digital bringing you ddd smart author tip number 13 you everywhere that's one of our goals here at ddd we're aiming to build tools that help you and your books be everywhere that your readers might be looking. And to do that, we've built a whole bunch of tools that you can use for free. Author pages, book tabs, reading lists, universal book links, those are just some of the ways we've got you covered in the world. And of course, we also distribute your books to hundreds of retailers, subscription services, and libraries all over the world. Helping you reach more readers is what we're here for. And we keep improving on that every day. Draft to Digital. We are self-publishing with support. Find more at d2d.tips/creativepen. That's pen with two ends because we're big on the numeral 2 around here. John Truby is the founder and director of Truby's Writer's Studio and teaches story principles and techniques through books, courses and audio programs, as well as speaking and story consulting. He's also the author of The Anatomy of Story. And today we're talking about his new book, The Anatomy of Genres. So welcome to the show, John. Well, thank you so much, Joanne. I can't tell you what a thrill it is for me to be here on this podcast with you. This is one of the top podcasts in the world, and I couldn't be happier to be here with you. Oh, thanks so much. But um, before we get into the meat of the book, tell us a bit more about you and how you came to be so enmeshed in the world of story. It's interesting. When I first started writing stories, there were no books I could find about how to do that, if you can imagine that. It's that it was that long ago. So I had to be self-taught. And what I did was I read as many great novels and saw as many great films as I could over about a three-year period. And I broke them all down to see what works and what doesn't work. 
I found that about 90% of what works came from the deep story structure under the surface. So I came up with a theory of story that was based on the organic development of the hero as they move through the plot. I then translated that into specific practical techniques. I began writing my own work and helping other writers fix their work. This led to a lot of story consulting jobs, and I started getting a reputation for being really good at story. Now, as you probably know, Hollywood is a small town, so that reputation got around very fast. And based on the techniques I was using, I decided to teach a course called The Anatomy of Story, which is also the name of my first book. And by now, over 50,000 writers have taken my story courses, and those students have sold over $15 billion worth of books, films, and television. And the book Anatomy of Story has sold over 200,000 copies worldwide in nine different languages. Now, if I may, just to give you some background on how this new book came about, Mm. a lot of times when I talk to writers about what I do, they say, oh, I know all about story. And they say, I use three-act structure or hero's journey or save the cat. And they think, well, that's all I need. Well, here's the problem. These books are great for beginners but they have very few practical story techniques and certainly nothing that can tell you how to write a great story at the professional level. Because remember, we're talking about being in the top 1% of writers. So when I wrote The Anatomy of Story, my goal was to include all the professional story techniques a writer would need in order to write a best-selling novel. But the one subject it does not cover which is now crucial to writing a bestseller, is how to write the different genres that make up 99% of popular story today. And that's why for the last five years, I've been writing The Anatomy of Genres. And now that book, I'm happy to say, is finally here. And I really believe it's going to change how writers tell their stories going forward. Indeed. And because, I mean, I think I saw you speak, I don't think I've told you this, I saw you speak at London Screenwriters Festival a a number of years ago now. Um, And I I came to one of your workshops and I feel like the anatomy of story. um, Well, I guess what I'm saying is with this book, The Anatomy of Genre, I feel like we're in the vanguard because you're going to be talking about this over a long time. And I'm like, yes, we're getting it first. And as I mentioned before we started recording, I got the copy you gave me to review, but I've bought it in hardback because it's such a great textbook. And I know a lot of people listening will probably already have the anatomy of story, but I think this book is quite different. And I, I almost think it's more practical because it's in genre. And most of the people listening write in genres. And in fact, exactly. we we know that we want to write best-selling books in genres. So, but before we get into it further, let's start with a definition. How do yeah. you define genre? And is it just a subcategory on Amazon? Well, it's a good question. The answer to that, a simple question, the answer to that is no. In the beginning of the book, I say that there are three rules for success in story today in every medium. And if you don't know these rules and don't play by them, you have no chance to succeed. Rule number one is the storytelling business buys and sells genres. That's their business. Now, genres are types of stories. 
but they're a lot more than that. They're really, I call them the all-stars of the story world. And they've achieved huge popular success over hundreds and in some cases, thousands of years in, in the particular case of myth. So writers who want to succeed professionally have to write the stories that the business, in other words, the publishers and the readers want to buy, which means the storytelling game is won by mastering the story structure of genres. And that means, first of all, mastering the 15 to 20 story beats that are unique to each form. These beats must be in your story. I can't emphasize that enough. Those 15 to 20 story beats must be in your story if you are to tell that genre story properly. But the bottom line is genres are plot systems. They are extremely popular and writing them is how you win. Just on the subcategories on Amazon. So just for independent authors uh, like myself, we when we publish, we have to put a book right. in several subcategories between two and 10 subcategories. So does it overlap in some way? Because yes, all our it, books do go into these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. What Amazon has is some of them... Uh, some of the categories in on Amazon are the major genres I talk about, but many of them are subgenres of the major genres. And I go into that in the book. In the book, for each of the genres, I tell what is the main genre and then what are the most popular subgenres of that form. But strictly speaking, in, in Amazon, because they're basing it on the marketing of these books, they want to break down the subgenres into as fine a, a distinction as possible. But the real trick in terms of writing the story is to know what your main genre is and what the main subgenre might be. Then when it comes to marketing it, that's knowing what that book is going to work best on on Amazon. Mm, okay, great. So you cover loads of genres in the book. That's why it's sort of a great handbook. And we can't go into them all in this. So I thought we'd take science fiction as an example, because it's not a genre I write or really read much of. So I thought this would be super interesting. So <laughs> what are some of the key elements of the yep. science fiction genre that can help authors listening to write a better book? I'm really glad you're asking about science fiction, because it's one of the most complex and ambitious of all genres. And the chapter on science fiction is full of techniques for writing a really good one. So let me just give your listeners some overview of how science fiction really works. Science fiction shows social and universal evolution. So it's usually an epic. And that's why science fiction is sometimes referred to as social philosophy in fiction form. The key question the genre asks, and every genre asks a key question, which defines basically the theme. In science fiction, it's how do you create a better world? But to write great science fiction, we first have to get past the big misconception that a lot of science fiction writers have, which is science fiction is not about predicting the future. It's about looking at the present world through different eyes and then focusing on the choices we have to make now to avoid the world that will come if we don't change. 
So a lot of the techniques for writing great science fiction focus on how you set up the story world, especially the society and the technology of the story. Now, the single biggest reason that many science fiction stories fail right off the bat is that the writer creates this bizarre, unrecognizable, futuristic world. And what that does is it alienates the reader by making them an intellectual observer, not an emotional participant. In other words, they're draining all the emotion out of the story. And that is a huge mistake. So the first technique is create a recognizable future world. So the reader can see that it's different from my world, but it's still my world that we're commenting on. Another technique, give the hero a severe weakness and especially a moral flaw. And in science fiction, often the hero's weaknesses turn on what it means to be human. And we see this in films like Blade Runner, 2001, Ex Machina. Another technique, the world that you create isn't just the future in time, it should be a new evolutionary stage. In other words, The society is a new vision of how the individual connects to the society. So, for example, in The Matrix, society has moved to a new stage where machines rule and create this fake human world to keep people enslaved. Now, to transcend science fiction, which I talk about in every genre, this is the key to setting yourself apart from the crowd, to setting yourself apart from everybody else who is writing in that form. You can't just do a big adventure story. No, you have to focus on how to make a new world. And you can see right there how ambitious the science fiction form is, because that's massive. Mm. You have to give a new vision of how the world works and how it can grow, which means at some point in the story, the hero must have a cosmic revelation. One last point on science fiction. Transcending this form almost always involves combining it with myth or horror. And in the book, in in the section of each chapter where I talk about how to transcend, often you transcend by connecting with another form, by creating some kind of hybrid. And in science fiction, some examples of science fiction plus myth are the Foundation Trilogy, Star Wars, 2001, Interstellar, The Stars, My Destination, and Arrival. Combining science fiction with horror, the greatest examples are Frankenstein, Ex Machina, and Westworld. And Alien, surely, Alien. Alien Alien is primarily a horror story. Ah, okay. It's a horror story in space, but yes, it is a combination of horror and science fiction. And I've mentioned horror, I've mentioned Alien quite a bit in the horror chapter. Yeah, it's so interesting. And uh, you talk there about transcending the genre, which I think is really interesting. But I did want to circle back on, you mentioned earlier about story beats. So some people might not know what story beats are, but you've mentioned there the sort of bigger things that you have to tackle within a science fiction book or in, in a particular genres. But how do the story beats fit into these bigger things? Like you mentioned a moral flaw for the hero, but how does that 
work with the story beats that are expected within a genre? Just give us a couple of examples yes, within science absolutely, fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's a great question because it is so important to distinguish story beats, plot beats from tropes. This is something I hear all a mistake I see writers making all the time. They think writing in their particular genre is all about, I grab a couple of a, a few tropes from this form and I put them together and I have a good story. Absolutely not. Genre beats are a, a story beat. People use the term story beat all the time. What a story beat is, is it's a plot event with major structural importance. And the reason that genres work the way they do, and the reason why you have to know your genre and transcend your genre to be successful, is that a genre is first and foremost a plot system. It is a sequence of plot beats, story beats, that connect together and allow you to build a story from beginning through middle to the end. And so if you're not working with all of the plot beats of that genre, as I mentioned, each one, each genre has 15 to 20 plot beats that are already predetermined. And so if you don't hit them, then you're going to have readers of that genre be very unhappy with you. For example, I sometimes give the example in a love story, in a romance if you fail to have the first dance, your romance readers are going to be really unhappy with you. So you have to hit these beats. But then, and this gets into the third rule that that when I was mentioning about the three major rules that you have to follow. The third rule is you have to transcend those beats. In other words, you can't just hit the plot beats. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient in any way. You have to transcend them. And transcending means Two things. One, you twist the beats, you do them in a different way, or you do them in a different order than they're normally seen. And the other way that you transcend is you express the deeper life philosophy that each genre has, because genres are not only plot systems. That's what most writers understand. They understand it's really these are different kinds of plots. What they don't understand is that genres are also theme systems. And it's that theme that is what brings the reader back again and again. It's the theme that the reader loves because readers who love romance novels, for example, they know what those beats are. They may not put a name to them, but they know what those beats are. So you're not going to surprise them with the plot. What you're going to do is reaffirm the values that that theme, that that life philosophy in that genre expresses, because that's the life philosophy that they want to live their life by and that they try to live their life by. Yeah, it's interesting. And I know that some people, myself included, we can sometimes feel like we do not want to be hemmed in. And it, mm. it feels like that. It's like, well, you're saying these are sort of predetermined story things. We have to hit story beats or whatever. And we have to hit those in order to be successful. And yet we come up with these stories and maybe they don't quite fit. And yeah, to be fair, I have not written like a blockbuster novel or, or a movie. So that could be the reason why. But how do we keep these things in place as a structure, but use our originality so that we don't feel like we're hemmed in? It, it's it's exactly what I was just saying in terms of transcending, because if you just hit those beats, 
you're doing what everybody else is doing. And that is generic writing. I mean, to, to use the word genre, it's generic writing. That's the worst thing you can do. So you absolutely don't want to be hemmed in by it. But at the same time, you have to hit those beats. Otherwise, it's not that genre. And so what do you do? You have to find a way to be creative with the beats that you have. And that's why I said it is absolutely essential that you take a genre story that is more or less familiar to your readers, but you do it in such a way that they've never seen before. And you do it either by flipping what happens in the beat, or you do it by changing the order. And changing the order of beats is a huge thing. It's really, really powerful because in the back of the reader's mind, they not only know the beats, they know how that is. those beats are going to build. They know how they're going to sequence. So if you play with that sequence, you totally short circuit their expectations and they love it. That's what they want you to do, because what you're basically doing is you're letting them have their cake and eat it, too. You let them have the beats that they love so much, but you also do it in such a way they've never seen before. So I liken it the analogy to you still got the structure, but you've added new skin on top. Yeah, exactly. And it's so interesting, isn't it? Because when you break it down, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, like 20 beats. Yeah, I can write that. And then <laughs> it's the bit on top of that that becomes difficult. But I wanted to ask you, so from the book, you say mixing genres is tougher than it looks. <laughs> and I was, I read that. I was like, yeah, I have to ask you about that because I write cross genre. I read cross genre and I write that way. And that's what I want. But it does seem much easier to sell clear genre stories. So how can we successfully write cross genre? Well, it is tricky. And if you don't know how to write it, you're going to get story chaos. And a lot of writers, when they try to mix genres, this is rule number two, that the most successful stories in every medium are mix of two to four genres. And so when writers try to do that, they don't know what they're doing. And so they end up with story chaos. They have too many heroes, too many opponents, too many desire lines, too many story spines, and so on and so forth. So the solution is choose a primary genre because that gives you your main hero, your main opponent. It gives you a single desire line. It gives you the primary plot beats, and it gives you the main theme. Then what you do is you add the beats from the other genres, but only when they work with the main genre. So if they con con contradict a, a beat from the main genre, and so the, the one reason that genres are different from each other is these, their story beats sometimes are in direct opposition to each other. So when that occurs, you don't include the beat from the, the genre that you're adding because you always want to keep the plot beats of the main genre first. And by the way, another benefit of choosing a primary genre is marketing because it lets the readers identify your main category of fiction. And as you point out, that's easier to sell. So notice what you're doing. You're mixing multiple genres when you write the story, but you're selling just one. 
That's such a challenge. So interesting that you mentioned story chaos. I love that. I think that's a great <laughs> phrase. And I often talk about my process is wrangling the chaos in terms yeah. of my the initial story. But you mentioned a few things there, like simplifying with a protagonist and an opponent and stuff. But if we find ourselves in story chaos, like we've lost the plot, as the adage goes, how can we get ourselves out of it? So I'm thinking of people listening, maybe they've got like 100,000 words or 70,000 yeah. words or something, and they're looking at it going, this is story chaos. How would you, as a story consultant, how would you fix that? Like, what do you advise people to do? Well, first of all, Joanna, I see this all the time. And it comes from typically the when they they first start writing, they didn't do the kind of prep work up front that was necessary to give them a single spine. And that's really what you're looking for. I mean, they're all of the techniques that I could mention in terms of fixing that story. It, it all comes down to the spine. And the spine is the desire line of the hero. What does the hero want? You want that to be very specific. And when I talk about rewriting in my anatomy of story class and book, I talk about the fact that there's a dirty little secret that most writers don't want to talk about, which is that typically the second draft is worse than the first. And it's very depressing for people. And they (laughs) think, I might as well give up right now. And one of the reasons for that is they don't know how to rewrite. And there is a, it's a specific set of skills, just as character is a set of skills, plot is a set of skills, and you have to learn how to do it. And the first rule of rewriting is don't do what most writers do, which is they go to the first scene and they start rewriting, they go start reading through it and rewriting that scene. No, no, it's the last thing you do. The first thing you do is you fix the structure of the story, and you do that by looking at the two endpoints of the story, the beginning and the end. 90% of the problems that are in your story are found in the first few pages and the setup to the story. And what do I mean by the setup to the story? Those are the pages where you set up the first major structure step of the story, which is the hero's weakness. That's what you're really solving for, their internal flaw, followed immediately by the desire line. What do they want in this story? You want it to be as specific as possible. Then you go to the end point of your story to the self-revelation. What is it that the character learns about themselves at the end of the story that fixes the weakness that they started off with? Once you get those three things correct, and you focus and make sure that those are right, those two point two endpoints on the string, on the spine, then everything else will fall into place. You will see exactly what is not working and why. Yes, and it's not grammar and typos, which is what no. for some reason people <laughs> obsess over. <laughs> yes. Yep. So it's so interesting. Right. There's so much. I've written like pages of notes and I've read the Blumen book and I've got it coming as well. But no, this is great. I did want to come back to theme. So you did mention theme before. But again, in the book, you say the crucial strategy in writing today is advanced theme expressed through complex plots. Genres are the vehicle for doing that. This isn't one way to succeed. It's the only way, which is (laughs) which is pretty strong. So you mentioned kind of theme, but this is that talks about advanced theme. So what is that and how can we use that? Just give us some, a couple of examples, I guess. 
Sure. L- l- let me just give people a background on this because theme is probably the most misunderstood element of great story. So advanced theme is what each genre is really about. Now, most writers are afraid of theme. They think it's the old classic Goldwyn line, which is if you want to send a message, send it Western Union. So they don't want to preach to the audience, which is good. So what do they do? They avoid theme altogether. That is a big mistake because it prevents them from telling a great story. So what is theme? Theme is the author's view of how to live successfully in the world. And it's one, and when it's done through this, the genre beats of the story, not preaching in the dialogue, it has tremendous power. And that's why in each chapter of the book, the first half explains those specialized genre beats of the form, in other words, the plot sequence. And the second half explains the deeper theme or the philosophy of life that the genre expresses. Now, each life philosophy contains a massive amount of wisdom that that genre can impart to the reader. But first, you, the writer, you have to know what that life philosophy is. And fact is, no one has ever done a book like this in story. And that's why I think this book is going to totally change how writers work in every medium, because the second half of each chapter, and as you know, this is very dense and very detailed stuff. But the second, the entire second half of each chapter is about how do you express the theme of that genre under the surface through the structure instead of preaching to the audience? It's interesting that you say like not preaching to the audience. And of course, that that implies like a long monologue about something. But yep. in the in some of the story structure books, there's a thing where the theme is stated at right. a particular point, like the hero will say something where they are stating the theme. Is that still something like somewhere in there it is sort of spelled out or is it all just done through action and subtext and uh, all and plot? I personally believe that it is that 80 to 90% of the theme should be expressed through the structure. Because as soon as you put the theme into dialogue in someone's mouth, the audience, the reader, these are people who have seen thousands of stories. As soon as you do that, they back out. They say, I don't want to hear that, right? They Mm -hmm. want to be lured in. And so what you do is that's why it's so important to do most of it through the story structure, through those plot beats. However, that being said, one of the marks of great writing is to have some theme expressed in dialogue. But it's only when you have it on a foundation of expressing the theme through the structure, because what are we saying? It's it's the old thing of you are what you do. Actions speak louder than words. If you want the audience to really get a sense of what this story is really about, and it's about how to live, you want to lure them in through the an exciting plot. And then once you got them there, then you can add some thematic lines to the dialogue. 
Yeah, so it's so funny because I mean, I've been writing fiction now for over a decade. And I feel like at the beginning, when you write your first novel, you think you can learn everything. And then you get to a point when you realise you can never learn everything. (laughs) There's always more to learn. And it's interesting. So the anatomy of story, many people use as a blueprint. And now the anatomy of genre, I'm sure many people will do that too. But you've taught tens of thousands of students, and not all of them are successful. So what sets apart the successful storytellers from the failed ones of the people who've used your methods? Because to me, it's like, I can take your books, but if I follow them exactly, I still won't be, <laughs> I'm not no. going to be the top in the top 1%. No. So what, what will set those people apart? How can we be that 1%? Yes. Again, great question. In my opinion, it's because reason most writers don't get to that bestseller status is because they don't know the story techniques that bestselling authors use. And they often think they know, as I mentioned, they read these books that I mentioned right at the beginning, but those are not professional techniques. That's the big distinction. And in my experience, the biggest difference, and this, by the way, has been, this belief has been heightened incredibly in the last 10 years because of trends in 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 storytelling in every medium in the last 10 to 15 years the biggest difference between the top 1% of professional writers and everybody else is the ability to create complex plot and what separates the top 0.1% of professional writers from everyone else is the ability to also express advanced themes And again, that's why I wrote the book, because it tells writers exactly how to express advanced themes through complex plot. Both of these elements, theme and plot, are misunderstood and, in the case of plot, highly underestimated. Most writers, when they think about telling their story, they know the importance of character and character change and the importance of tight dialogue and so on. But when it comes to plot, they think, well, I'll just figure that out as I go. And that is the worst thing you can do because plot has more techniques to being able to write a complex or a great plot than all other story skills combined. And most writers simply don't know what those techniques are. Hmm. Can can you just address literary fiction as well? Because I can hear people listening who are like, yeah, but I write literary fiction. I don't write science fiction or horror or whatever. So what about literary fiction? How does this relate to that? Because it's not known as plot heavy, really. Exactly. And that is the biggest challenge you have when you write literary fiction. Now, what what some writers of literary fiction do is they have a very anti-plot idea. And this, by the way, is about 150 years old. We went through major emphasis on plot with writers like Dickens and Dumas. And then from then on, there was a slow but steady decline in terms of the importance that writers put the importance of plot. And we had this idea of anti-plot, that we would purposely try to have as little plot as possible. Now, there are some advantages to that, but there are very severe disadvantages to it as well. And I believe that one of the best techniques for a writer of literary fiction is 
put some plot in there, get some plot in there. Now, it's difficult to do in literary fiction. Why? Because of the story structure. The story structure in literary fiction is, and why it's not, literary fiction is not included in this book is because technically speaking, it's not a genre. It is a level, it is a quality of story. But if you were to look at stories that we normally think of as literary fiction, they are typically personal dramas. They are typically, uh, we have a main character and typically the opposition is within the family or it's with characters who act like a family. And Drama is a very large category of stories, but the problem with writing them is because it they drama does not have these landmarks, these guideposts that tell you it doesn't have a predetermined hero, predetermined opponent, and so on and so forth. Now, writers of literary fiction say, that's why I write it, because I don't want to have those kind of prefab things. And that's great. But the problem is, Right, coming up with a plot that will engage the reader enough to get across those larger elements of theme and character that you want to express. Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, I read a lot of horror and horror is often standalone story. And a lot of the books I read are literary horror. Like they really are incredible quality writing uh, in a story that technically fits in horror. And of course, there's plenty of examples of that. So I, I agree with you there. I think that's brilliant. Johnny, you bring up a great point right there, which is the main technique. You know, I go through in each chapter how exactly how you transcend that particular genre. But the main technique overall for transcending any genre is to combine the plot beats of the genre with drama techniques. And so what you just described, like high-level horror, mm. that's probably somebody who took the horror form and added drama elements, literary fiction elements, and kicked it up to a higher level. That combination is probably the best combination for telling a story that is both a popular and critical success. Mm, which is a rare thing indeed. <laughs> yes. So we, we're almost out of time, but you end the book with a glimpse into the future of storytelling and talk about an immersive experience where the story comes to life, potentially in virtual reality or in other ways. And you say the audience will interact with the story at every degree. And in a way that's exciting and in a way that's kind of scary, but how can we create in a way that might enable this kind of adaptation? Well, we're definitely moving toward a complete interconnection between life and story, in my opinion. And I believe that's a good thing, because the more story informs our lives, the more we can make a life we want to live. And I believe story is the key to doing that. So we're moving toward what I call in the book, a complete storification. I made up a word there, storification of the world. Now, to your question, The way writers allow the reader to interact with the story at every degree is to create a story structure and a story world where all the genres exist simultaneously, or as many genres as work for that particular story idea. And that allows the story to move in a number of different directions, which the audience reader cannot predict. It allows them to identify with characters depending on which genre that main character represents. And by the way, we're seeing this not just in theme parks, 
and VR and so on, which, you know, the immersive, that, that's all about going immersive, as, much, as immersive as possible. But you're even seeing this in film, uh, novels, and television. Because, and especially television, which is one of the things I talk about in the book is we have lived through two major revolutions in story in our lives. The first is the revolution of television becoming an art form to the degree that it is now far surpassed film as the place where the best stories are told. Um, and the other major revolution that we're seeing that I talk about in the myth uh, story is the emergence of the female myth, which has been gone from our culture for 3000 years. And it's coming back strong. It's coming back fast. But the point is that when you set up when you set up stories that have various genres as part of the main storyline, and in TV especially, you're going to see this because of the serial story structure that they use, which of course is based on Dickens, then you're going to be able to do these multi-line stories with multi-main characters, each representing a different genre and telling a different type of story, which the reader will then be able to hook into in various ways. Yeah, as you were talking there, I was thinking of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which I tried the books. I, tried, I read a couple of them and I think the TV show was fantastic. And like you said, it actually has all the genres. I mean, yeah. you know, on one level, it's fantasy, but the romance is very strong. Obviously, it's thriller. It's horror. It's got uh, everything. I don't know about science fiction, but it's it's like you're right. These big things that hit. I mean, Harry Potter is another great example. Yeah where we can see ourselves in the different characters and there's elements of all these different stories. I mean, George R. R. Martin in particular has had a very long career and a lot of it was a failure. And then he created this world that has become so evocative and obviously has made him very, very rich. <laughs> is this something we can learn over a career or is it something that just happens? Like for J.K. Rowling, it was her first series. Do you think it is luck? Like how much does luck play in this? I, I, luck I think and preparation? There's, there's zero luck involved in that. Now, obviously, you can't control whether something you write will be popular. And of course, She's famous for having the Harry Potter stories uh, turned down by everybody initially, as was Star Wars, for example. These stories are legendary. But in terms of when you look at what they're doing and you break down what they've done structurally and in terms of genres, that is totally figured out from the beginning. And it's just they're really brilliant at mixing genres. I talk in the first chapter of the book how Star Wars started the, this whole thing in every medium, this this mixed genre world that we live in. There are four major genres in Star Wars. And what the studios and publishers realized once Star Wars came out was, we're living in a multi-genre story world now. And if you want to hit a worldwide audience, that's what you do. Harry Potter has four major genres in it. And there is no question in my mind that J.K. Rowling put those together with that, with foresight, knowing exactly how she wanted to do that in the story world that she created. It, and Game of Thrones is exactly the same way. You can't get that kind of multi-thread storylines with multiple heroes and over 150 major characters unless you've got that thing really figured out ahead of time, both in terms of not just the plot and the characters, 
but in terms of how you're going to weave those genres. So I absolutely believe that people can learn it. And that's why I wrote this book. Mm, and it is an excellent book. As I've said, <laughs> I'm getting it in hard copy when it comes out. And yeah, I, I definitely will be using it. So tell people where they can find you and your books and courses online. Great. For the book, just go to anatomyofgenres.com. That's one word, anatomyofgenres.com. And for courses in story software, just go to truby.com, T-R-U-B-Y.com. And whatever your genre is, whatever your story preference might be, we've got courses and software to help you do that. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, John. That was great. Joanna, thank you. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with John. I certainly got a lot out of it. So how can you use his tips on transcending genre in particular to improve your next novel or your short story? So next week, I'm talking to Dan Padavona about pivoting genre and mindset tips for success. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.